listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a PhD student at New York University, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structured prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Aaron Corville, who is currently a professor at the University of Montreal. Aaron's research includes foundational work on representation learning, on generative modeling, including the influential generative adversarial networks method, and many contributions to deep learning models and methods. It was an honor to talk with Aaron, and this episode is packed with history, ideas, and advice. Aaron's PhD thesis is titled A Latent Cause Theory of Classical Conditioning, which he completed in 2006 at Carnegie Mellon University. We start with his early interest in intelligence from a cognitive perspective, which eventually led to his work in the PhD on classical conditioning. Aaron took a generative modeling approach to classical conditioning, developing a model which operates on the idea that events in an environment are attributable to a latent cause, and that animals attempt to recover the joint probability distribution of all observed stimuli. We talk about the backstory behind this work, how it does and doesn't connect to things he thinks about now, and which problems are still difficult today. Then we move on to how Aaron moved into machine learning and deep learning research, chart the path from deep Boltzmann machines to today's methods, and talk about his recent work on systematic generalization in language. The Thesis Review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you would like to support the podcast, you can contribute a dollar at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview. Your donations will go directly towards keeping the show up and running. And thank you to all of those who have contributed so far. There are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Aaron Corville with A Latent Cause Theory of Classical Conditioning on the Thesis Review. One thing you looked into in your thesis was implementing this idea of Occam's razor. Uh, yes. So the idea that we should favor simpler hypotheses over more complicated ones. So just in general, like, why do you think this is such a good heuristic in practice like why does simplicity end up winning out a lot of the times well i think i I, yeah i mean it's an interesting question actually so i I guess what i would say is that there's a the world is complicated right the world is complicated for for animals in nature for humans in our built environments and if you don't have something and if you're trying to make predictions about the world and you don't have something that's going to bias you towards leaving out elements of this complexity, I think you're quickly going to have uh, impossible, impossibly complex predictions and impossibly complex set of variables, which you need to be just so in order to make those predictions. So in other words, you're going to do, you're going to generalize poorly. Mm. If you're looking for this entire set of, of rich, complex things to be just so in order for the next thing to happen. Right. It's a kind of a classic case of, of what we see with overfitting in machine learning. Mm. So there we're, we're 
We have models that just memorize elements of the examples that are indeed for that example, predictive of the, of the label, let's say in a supervised learning case, but are not going to be generally useful when you're in, in a new context. The same basic process underlies the, uh, like motivates, I guess, the Occam's razor approach in, in Bayesian learning. Mm -hmm. So I guess that is why, but you, you, uh, uh, there's, there's a follow-up question, um, which I think is an interesting one and, and got me, you got me thinking about it in, 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 uh, in our earlier discussion in the form of your notes here. Yeah. And that's, um, that's the question of, is it ever wrong? Is this Occam's razor, uh, approach ever wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it's, so in other words, sometimes, you know, is it, is it possible that sometimes the complex answer is the correct one and us having this bias towards simplicity steers us wrong? Right? And I think the answer there is almost certainly, absolutely, yes, that's true. Right? That happens all the time. And it depends on what our context is, where we think uh, you know, sometimes we think something is simple given our context. A, a good example, I think, of this is is um, notions uh, like just in, in we see this in physics, right? Uh, so relativity is certainly counterintuitive, and by that basis, one might consider it to be a rather complex theory because it doesn't match well our intuitions about the world. So we went and posited things that matched better our intuitions about the world that I think, from the point of view of our learned experience, were simpler. And they were just not so, right? So our our lived experience, our intuitions about the world steered us in, steered us wrong in that way. Our, so our priors about the world steered us wrong. And so I think that's a that's an interesting way to think about complexity versus simplicity here. So what what is closer to our priors? Right. Um, one might consider that to be a simpler um, uh, explanation. I see. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes the simplicity can lead to better generalization, but then we should also keep in mind that it's not, it's still maybe a heuristic. And so some people yeah. might need a more complicated, uh, explanation. Yeah. 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 It's it certainly like, if you're going to hold to one or the other, the complex or the simple, you're better to hold to the simple, but it's, it's not to say that it will always be true. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Hopefully we'll, we'll touch on these points throughout the discussion, but let's, let's maybe go back to before you started a PhD. So could you just talk about your background and then what kind of led up to you deciding to do a PhD? Yeah, so I was, um, I, I grew up in a, in a small city called Cornwall, Ontario. Um, I was born in Saskatchewan, actually, Saskatchewan uh, uh, in, the, in the prairies, provinces of Canada. And, uh, but I, I mostly grew up in Cornwall. I did my high school in Cornwall. And then I went on to uh, my undergrad at the University of Toronto, um, doing a program called Engineering Science. And that program is, is still around today. It's still sort of, uh, I believe, has the reputation it had in its time, which is a pretty rigorous program. It's sort of a, uh, it's um, an engineering school. In, in Canada, the way the engineering schools are, 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 are set up is they're a little bit different than just sort of a major. It's, it's because, you know, when you're done, you get certified as an engineer. So they're sort of a, a little bit more tightly controlled. But this particular program was uh, geared towards those people that are interested in, you know, maybe exploring things in a little bit more theoretical fashion or, or you know, 
thinking about a career in research after after the undergrad. So they would go through and do a little bit more uh, more of a rigorous treatment. Like we would take classes in the physics department and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so um, while I was there, I, I got interested. Uh, I had a, a professor, uh, Berj Bardakian, who got me really interested in, in neural networks. In fact, he was his his uh, field was biomedical engineering, and that actually became my kind of, I guess, if you like, my sub-major there uh, in my undergrad was biomedical engineering. I ended up working um, in his lab for a time afterwards, and actually I did my master's with him at the University of Toronto as well. And so there, you know, I was doing work on... um, on the brain, on models of neurons, and actually we uh, we were looking at theories of how uh, epilepsy, uh, how we can treat epilepsy, in fact. So I was actually studying theories of, of how chaos theory could be used to um, as a kind of a way to treat epilepsy, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so from there, I guess I started to read more and more about the brain, and I got more interested in notions of, of learning in general and actually in machine learning. And one of the things that bothered me with how I was treating it at the time was that it was very much treating the brain as, as sort of this, this kind of a, a traditional computer, uh, like a, or not a computer, but a traditional plant, let's say, in, in the, in, in the um, control literature, we call these like machines plants, right? So, so we would, we would treat it as this sort of this device that we would just kind of stick needles into and read things from. And it, that, kind of bothered me because, you know, from my point of view at the time, the, the brain was first and foremost an, an information processing system, right? That took information from the outside, processed it, and, and led to actions and, and, uh, and things like that. And, and from my point of view, it was a little bit, uh, we were just not quite seeing the whole picture uh, from the way I was studying it. So I wanted to you know, treat it more as an, a truly an input-output device and, and an information processing device. So I got interested in, in, in all kinds of things from there, right? So more machine learning and even robotics and those kinds of things. And so when I applied for grad school, the, the Robotics Institute at Carnegie Mellon seemed really appealing to me. And at the same time, there was this uh, Center for the Neural Basis of Cognition, which I applied to simultaneously. That's a joint program between uh, the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University, or CMU. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so I, I applied to those two programs. I got in there, and um, and it seemed like a, a really good fit for me because I could, you know, still study the brain from from a neural uh, point of view, and yet have more of an environment where we would look at, you know, machine learning and, and, uh, and just this, a point of view where we really can take seriously the notion of the brain as a, as an information processing system. That was kind of what I was really looking for at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I got there. Um, I went to work with my supervisor, David Turetsky. And at the time he was interested in, in classical conditioning and those kinds of things. And, at the, and I wasn't necessarily that at least going into it, I, I didn't, really think I was going to be interested in those kinds of problems at all. They seemed, you know, pretty simple to me and, and frankly, not that interesting, right? Like if you, the, the, the high level bit of that work is, you know, you, there's a, you sit a dog down or you put him in a harness and you, you ring a bell and then you give him food and you ring a bell and you give him food. And eventually the dog will start salivating when you, when you ring the bell, right? That's the kind of. The, yeah. Like the Pavlov's dogs. Uh, type, yeah, exactly. exactly. 
the, the original work of Pavlov. And so it was, you know, okay as it was, but then there was some very simple theories on how this sort of thing worked. But yeah, so that's, I guess, what made me go into the, the, the PhD program that I, that I went into. Yeah. When you were using these neural networks during undergrad, was it because it seemed like it was useful for these problems, you, like it was a good model for these neuroscience problems you were working on? or Because it certainly wasn't like the state of the art back then, right? No, right. Yeah. I mean, I was, I, I was incredibly naive about, about what the state of the machine learning world was at the time, I, I should mention. And I was using them very much because they were a close analog to, to the kind of work I was doing. Although, I mean, that being said, there were some... So I was using things like uh, radial basis function uh, networks, which are uh, pretty simple things that are you essentially embed points in data space and then do essentially a linear mapping on top of those of the dynamics of a system. And what was kind of, it was kind of interesting, though, that you could take these models and with very few radial basis functions, you could emulate the dynamics of, of complex, well, not of complex systems, but of chaotic systems. So like the Henon map, for example, you can, you can actually reproduce the dynamics of a Henon map pretty reliably with like, I don't know, 10 radial basis functions and just a, a linear network on top of that. Mm-hmm. So that was interesting to me. Um, and, uh, and so we were using these kinds of models as, as um, analogs to, to the kinds of dynamics we, uh, we thought could explain certain phenomenon in the brain. So again, at the time we were looking at, at epilepsy. I see. And then like, when did machine learning come into the picture? Because it sounds like even all the way leading up to your PhD, your underlying interest was in answering these questions about the brain. And then maybe like machine learning is one way of investigating those questions. Yeah. So I, it's actually kind of funny. I, I, machine, I was always, I guess I spent a great deal of my time, uh, right up until I finished my PhD being what I would consider uh, machine learning adjacent, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I was in the robotics Institute and, and it's, I'm not exaggerating. I like literally all of my friends were doing machine learning and, and I, it seemed like the cool thing to be doing to me. So I, I kind of always wanted to do straight up machine learning, but what I, but I was also like pretty interested in these problems. And, and at the time during my PhD, I was getting more and more interested in these these really basic problems of, of how animals learn and how we could actually model those learning phenomenon. And it seemed to me I could actually use the tools of machine learning uh, in, in, those, in those problems to try to explain how animals learn. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I drifted into uh, thinking and how I drifted into thinking about these things. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of, there was both, I was interested in, in machine learning models from the point of view of the technology. It just seemed like a really powerful set of tools. So I was interested in those, those tools. And I happened to be interested in, in, I was in these questions, right? I basically became interested in these questions as I was learning more and more about them because they were, they were subtle and they were actually kind of complicated right so the the very simple ways that animals learn are, are pretty straightforward but but you start to see that there's this hundred years of research into these problems right and this there's like, like huge literature and all of these minutiae tiny little changes in these experiments which yield you know quite different results and trying to understand and wrap your head around what 
kind of model could be could consistently encapsulate all of these different phenomena uh, was essentially you know the project I gave myself for for my uh, my PhD and you know I, I got a certain distance I certainly didn't incorporate all of animal learning phenomenon but uh, but I, I I was pretty happy with with the kinds of results I ended up with yeah so the thesis is centered around this classical conditioning as you mentioned and reading through the introduction I think I was familiar with classical conditioning maybe from some psychology 100 course I took a while back yeah but then as you mentioned there's all these different variations of this simple Pavlov's dog setup there's like there's like blocking and second order conditioning and configural conditioning and all these things yeah and um it seems to get quickly like more complicated than than you might expect yeah so in the in the larger picture of like behavior or learning can we fit this classical conditioning into something like this like system one versus system two divide or are these kind of separate separate things ah that's interesting i hadn't really thought about it very much that way so I guess I would prefer to think about it as not necessarily mapping on to either system one or system two. So let's let's think about this. Uh, for, for our purposes, let's consider system one to be more like uh, automatic kind of processing that happens in the brain, a bit more intuitive responses, reflexive responses. And system two is a little bit more kind of, there's gonna be more cortical involvement. You're sort of thinking through these processes and you're sort of, it's a, a more of a reflective kind of uh, information processing. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, yeah, so there's re- reflex and, and contemplation. Let's consider those as the two, the two types of system here. I think much of what was going on in classical conditioning um, before my work and the, the kinds of modeling work that I was, I was reading at the time really considered classical conditioning to be very squarely a manifestation of system one type learning. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of it. And, and it's, and they, and, and so the models were simple, you know, they, and, and specifically they were always all about taking some, you get some stimulus input in and you try to predict the reward. Right. So, you know, reinforcement learning as a field grew out of these kinds of, of ways of thinking about it. But but the way these models were set up is the only thing you're ever predicting is the reward. Mm-hmm. And so it, and there's a, a real important consequence to, to the setting up your problem that way. And, and it's, first of all, I should say it's a reasonable will. It's a reasonable way to set things up because, you know, it's, it's reasonable to imagine that that is all that animals care about. You know, some sort of salient cue, right? And by reward here, I, I mean like some, it's more like a generalized reinforcement, right? It could be food, or it could be uh, an electric shock on the foot, or it could be like a water dunk or something like this. So either something positive or negative that's that's inherently salient to to the animal. Um, so that is the things that they innately care about, um, but. But the reason why I'm, I'm hesitant to, to say that, you know, classical conditioning phenomenon is, is a system one kind of event or, or system one kind of phenomenon, that that's, that's how we should treat it, is I think, you know, I basically spent my thesis suggesting that, in fact, something else is going on in these, mm-hmm. in these uh, phenomena. They're simple, but, but that 
you know, my, my thesis is titled A Latent Cause Theory of Classical Conditioning. And, and that is essentially what it is at the, at the very highest level where I'm, I'm imagining, I'm building these models where I'm imagining there is some cause and the animals is just trying to predict everything mm-hmm. in the world. Um, that, you know, that, so we're not going to, uh, you know, develop too much what this cause might be. But the, the important bit about this is it's a fully generative model in the sense that you are really trying to predict, the animals are really trying to predict everything in the world and the structure of how things interact in the world. Yeah, yeah. And so that certain consequences in terms of their pattern of behavior, which I argue is, is more consistent with uh, with what we see in their behavior. Yeah, so, so as you mentioned, the like a lot of the thesis is centered around this latent cause theory that you develop, where animals assume that events within their environment are attributable to some latent cause. Yeah. And then uh, you said that like learning would be recovering this generative model of both the stimuli as well as the reinforcement. Yeah. And, and in my model, the reinforcement isn't privileged at all. It's just another stimulus. I see. Yeah. Reading through the, the introduction, there was a lot of overview of different learning theories. And at least to me, like it seemed like this generative modeling view was a bit different. I mean, so how did you kind of start down this line of developing this perspective? Yeah, honestly, the, I mean, I guess I was in the right sort of time and space for this, right? In the sense that I, it was, it, it was like the early 2000s. I was in a center for, you know, or, 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 you know, CMU was one of the centers for machine learning. And uh, there, the, at the time, generative models, uh, specifically graphical models, so directed graphical models were very much in vogue. And so I, I was thinking a little bit along those lines. Um, but also the other influence I had is I, I would, I spent, uh, you know, a huge amount of my time reading these, this hundred years of experience. So I feel like I had like a, almost like a, a throwback PhD experience. Cause I would, I would literally be going through the stacks uh, in these old uh, libraries, pulling out articles from the fifties, photocopying them, taking them home and reading them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any of my, uh, my colleagues or my, my cohort at the time were doing that. It was, it was, people were starting to put things more and more online. So, you know, I think I was, it was, I was more the exception, at least in my, my colleagues that, that I would do that. And, but I ended up with like, stacks and stacks of papers that I would just read through and, and, and think about how you could account for the, that pattern of behavior. And, and it seemed to me pretty clearly that it, it, it doesn't take very long before you sort of start to think that, well, clearly animals are learning uh, about more than just reward uh, because y- you can tell that they're actually learning when reward isn't pre- present, right? Or expected. Uh, in the very simplest of experiments, we can see that kind of an effect. So, for example, um, there's this, this, we mentioned earlier, uh, second-order conditioning. So this is one of these really, really simple phenomena that what you have is you have two stimulus, A and B, right? These can be bells or lights or any kind of thing, but we'll just abstract them away and consider them A and B. You present uh, A and B together without reward. So you present A and B together for a few for a few repetitions, and then you present a few examples of A with reward, mm-hmm. right? And now, so in the animal to the point where the animal learns to associate A with reward. 
Now, the, the surprising thing here is that if you then present B, the animal will have a, a relatively weak response, but they will respond as though they're predictive, predicting reward here. With just B, right? Even though B has never been paired with reward, and B has never been paired in a context where there should be an expectation of reward. Right. So any of these models that are only predictive of reward would learn exactly nothing in, in the first stage of learning there where you pair A and B together. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of these really basic phenomenon that you just can't really account for unless you're prepared to accept that animals are learning about more than just reward. I see. And then I guess like maybe due to potentially like the, the group you're in and things you're interested in, you begin to see this probabilistic framework as like a, a tool for writing down this idea almost. Right, right. So chronologically, it's actually kind of funny. The The thesis is uh, is written in, you know, it's laid out in a way that's a bit chronologically not quite accurate in the sense that, that the last chapter of content actually was the first work I did. Mm. Um, it's the one that sort of lays things out on a timeline. And so there's these really interesting uh, it's a long set of experiments. It's a huge number of papers uh, written by by a professor out of uh, SUNY Binghamton, uh, Ralph Miller, who had all of these experiments that that essentially show that animals seem to keep track of the timing of events. Mm. And so and so he actually could show that that you know if you switch around the timing, their behavior will change based on kind of where they imagine they are in this timeline of events. And so this is one of those uh, cases where, you know, you look at that and, you know, steeped in models like, like uh, hidden Markov models and stuff like that. You're like, well, I, I know how to model that, right? I just I throw a simple Markov model at it and, and I can just do inference in that model. And you could, it really seemed to me looking at the, the pattern of animal behavior, that that's exactly how they were treating this, this, uh, this phenomenon that, that they were just, trying to put themselves in a timeline. They were learning about the timeline of events. And then at test time, they were trying to do inferences to place themselves in this timeline based on the observations they're seeing. Right, right. And so, and so you know, I just happened to be in a place and, and uh, you know, have the, a certain expertise that I had to be like, well, to, to understand that I, I, I had some tools that could model this phenomenon in a way that hadn't been modeled before. Um, and not that, and Markov models are not extraordinary tools at that time, right? They're pretty well established. Just they weren't something that was being applied to those kinds of phenomenon yet. Right. So it's kind of a combination of, of a set of experiments that were a little bit outside of the, the canonical set. Uh, Ralph Miller had a really interesting experiments that really, you know, were pretty different from the mainstream and my own background that kind of, uh, so suggested a certain set of tools to use. And then once I applied those tools to those, um, to those phenomena, I, you know, I was able to do a reasonable job of you know, building a computational model that accounted for the, those behavioral phenomena. We could try to go into some details of the Bayesian aspect of it, but first um, just, you mentioned spending a lot of time reading these different theories. So theories of learning. Mm -hmm. And I think it's not a spoiler for the listeners, but nowadays you work on uh, much different things, right? But I was wondering, like, all that time spent reading these different theories, and maybe, like, you can't help but make some parallel between 
animal learning and machine learning. Do any of these still stay with you in your thought process or is it kind of just like a long lost uh, <laughs> set of, of papers that you read a while ago? Uh, the, the, yeah, you know, the, I guess they really don't actually. It, I, <laughs> I can't think of any of those papers. I mean, I, I think that it's, they are potentially interesting. Like I'm actually working on something nowadays that is, that did grow out of cognitive science. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so I think this field still has lots of contributions to make, or at least, um, you know, I, I'm finding that it does. Right. Uh, but those specific models, the way maybe I would say it is that that um, they have like most of the ideas that I think were useful have already been incorporated into the machine learning literature like a long time ago. I see. Like a lot of the reinforcement learning literature actually is based on you know a lot of that grew out of trying to account for those kinds of learning phenomena in animals, mm. and so those kinds of phenomena that 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 were meant to account for animal behavior kind of grew right almost immediately into trying to make robots do interesting things. Yeah, I did. I did find it interesting that uh, you mentioned like the TD learning and it was referencing yeah. Sutton and, and Bartow. And now we see that all the time in machine learning. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then if we could um, maybe just at, at a high level, go over like one of these Bayesian ideas. So there's this idea of Bayesian inference over the different causes. And I guess the idea here is that the model would um, kind of learn to choose from many different structures for the latent cause model. Right. And the key idea here was like around this trading off generalization versus discrimination. Right. Yeah. Let's go back to this idea of, of second order conditioning that I talked about. Because this is really, there's like a, a pattern of behavior that was a puzzle for me. Hmm. And trying to account for that really led me to taking this Bayesian approach. So here's the puzzle. So we talked about this, the second order conditioning phenomena, right? Where you have A and B paired together, and then you have um, A with reward, and then B, you test on B and it predicts reward. Hmm. But now, now let's imagine blocking. So blocking is just more of the same. Right? So lots of examples of A and B, uh, often these are inter, interleaved, actually. So you have A and B without reward and A with, re, with reward. Right? So now what happens is if you give a lot of that kind of data and then you test on B, B now is not only just not predictive of reward, meaning it, it doesn't predict reward, but it will actually suppress a prediction of reward from another stimulus that was predictive of reward. Say, for example, so we're going to add another stimulus C that we pair with reward. And now if we put C and B together, that will lead to uh, no prediction of reward, or at least a drastically reduced prediction of reward. Yeah, yeah. And so what's weird about this is you have the same exact set of, of, of trials being done, right? A and B without reward, A with reward. And it's just a question of how much of that experience you give the animal. They actually go from thinking B is predictive of reward to the exact opposite. It's actually B becomes predictive of the absence of reward. Mm-hmm. So how does one account for that? That was the, the puzzle I, I, I had uh, in, in trying to think about this. And the way, honestly, the way I thought about it is that there's a kind of intuition going on here, right? 
early on, if you think that these are all just sort of random things happening, right? And you have A and B get somehow paired together, that's a thing. And then A gets predict gets paired with reward, and that's a thing. You might just, the simplest kind of model is these things just could all happen, right? These are all things that could happen together with very little data. You happen to have seen cases where A happens to have been paired with B and A happens to have been paired with reward, but any of these things could happen, right? So, so it would stand to reason that if you then see B, you think, okay, well, I'm in this context, right? I, where, where this, one of these things happens. So I'll start predicting all of these things happening. In other words, I'll start predicting reward. Mm -hmm. But now if you get a lot more experience, you start to realize that actually, no, there are, there are two contexts here, right? Or there, you could say there are two latent causes. One where, one context where, um, where A and B happen and another context where A and reward happen. Mm -hmm. And so when I observe B, I am now saying, oh, I'm actually in a different context now. I'm not in the context where I should predict reward. I'm in the other context where I would predict A. So, so you, it learns to essentially suppress reward. In fact, for, to actually get this phenomenon where you have to suppress the reward, I, we have to go a little bit more into the modeling details. And that's where we get into these, I use these sigmoid belief networks so that the, the, B, the, the latent cause associated with B actually goes in and drives down the probability of reward. So, so the, the model ends up adding this cue that says B now is, is actually predicting the absence of reward. And so I needed this kind of modeling paradigm of, of sigmoid belief networks to make that clear, that arrangement clearer. That was essentially the way I thought about it was that you, you essentially, and, and so now the question is, um, you have these, these kind of two ways of thinking about it, right? So how do you negotiate between them? Well, it seemed to me a natural way to think about this is is through Bayesian reasoning, right? Where when you have very little data, you're going to infer the simplest model possible. So what you're going to do is imagine the simple case where they're all just sort of paired together, mm -hmm. uh, and, and you know because you you have little data to support a more complicated model. But as you grow the number of trials that the animal experiences, you know the animal has more evidence to support a more complicated model of reality. And that's what, you know, the model that associates two causes would look like here. And so it, that way of thinking about it is pretty consistent with the data from my point of view. I see. And, and that's where the implementing Occam's razor comes in. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So then the, the latent cause comes in to kind of be able to switch contexts in, in some sense. Right. The, the way I here, just because I needed something, I was using the word context. I think that's a great way to think about how I was using these latent causes. Mm -hmm. I guess the way I would think about it, this is in the first case where we just had a few set of trials, we inferred one latent cause in the world that was just attached to everything. And then any one of these things being observed would, would be evidence towards that latent cause being in effect, right? Like you imagine an experimenter, you know, being the latent cause and maybe turning on switches and we've okay, now that I've turned on the switch where either lights, or sorry, either A or B or reward could happen, right? That's the, that's the context that this animal understands. With more experience, they understand that there's actually two switches, right? There's a switch for A and reward and a switch for B and minus reward. And those are the two uh, possible uh, causes that could be ineffective. And if the animal observes A and B, then they're both turned on. And the, the positive prediction of reward that happens through A 
and the negative prediction of reward that happens through B kind of cancel out and you end up with like a, a nominal prediction of reward for, for, um, for that context, for those, the two contexts being combined. I see. Yeah. And then here, I mean, you're using Bayesian reasoning, even like some of the techniques that were described in the thesis, like MCMC, we might still see variations of that being used today. Um, so certainly perhaps those things stuck with you later into your research career, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess one of the things that, that stuck with me that I think really influenced me um, was just how complicated it is to reason about structure mm. in this way, in the way that I did in my thesis, right? So let's maybe back up a bit. Since you, you, you mentioned MCMC, uh, and you know, if so so one of the things that I think it's important to say is I was addressing these learning phenomena in animals very much at, at a sort of a, a, an abstract level. Right. I was I was treating these things as uh, is what should animals learn, and not necessarily how animals were do, were implementing these learning mechanisms. So I'm not making really in my thesis. I'm not making any claims about about MCMC being how animals implement this at all. Um, that's that's uh, I think something I, I, I that's important to to point out. Um, but you know what I found was I was using. Uh, something called reversible jump MCMC, which allowed you to jump between models of different sizes. Mm. And in my context, uh, like, you know, keep in mind, these models are really, really simple compared to the kinds of models that we're dealing with nowadays, right? Like the, you know, neural nets with, with, uh, with, with hundreds of thousands or, or millions of, of uh, units, you know, we're not anywhere close to that here, right? We're, we're talking about, about a neural net with like, you know, at most five hidden units, right? That's literally the size of model we're talking about here. So, yeah. so these are really, really simple models. And even there, it was actually really difficult to make the tools I was working with actually do something, actually do reasonable inference over the structures I was working on. So I needed to resort to like, uh, these these kind of temperature methods where I kind of go up in temperature and bring it back down in order to, to ensure that they're mixing properly. Uh, these these tools are just really awkward. So I guess if if you like the the one thing I've I think I've really taken forward from that time is is just that some things don't tend to scale well, and I think reasoning about structure in that way does not tend to scale well. That's been my experience, and I've not seen a whole lot since then to, to, that leads me to sort of change my mind about that. I'd be open to change my mind if, if we actually did one day see uh, evidence to the contrary, but I've not seen that so far. That's really interesting. Yeah. Another, um, I might be grasping at straws here, but uh, another like potential connection is to think about like starting with the sigmoid belief network. Yeah. Could you somehow loosely connect that with like a deep belief network and then from there take a few more steps and get to where we are with current deep neural networks? Or are these kind of just separate separate things? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I mean, I think the, the deep belief networks and sigmoid, the, the sigmoid belief nets that I was working with are to a certain extent related. Uh, I mean, there's a pretty significant differences, right? How we are, they're learned are, are, are quite different in the sense that I was, like I said, I was doing 
treating these as, as full Bayesian models, Bayesian over their parameters, uh, meaning I was positing distributions over their parameters, doing inference, so we can collect posterior distributions over their parameter values and over the structure itself. So I would literally have different samples that have different structures, and I could ask questions like, what is the probability that this unit would be in a connection, in, connected through a latent variable to this, to this other stimulus, for example? Um, now, for, for sigmoid belief networks are, are um, well, that's, that's how I was treating them, but the, the deep belief nets were pretty different, right? You, you start by training an RBM, and then you kind of stack these things on top, so you'd have a very deep network relatively speaking to kind of the, to compared to the networks I was training a much much bigger model, right? Like several orders of magnitude bigger at least. Um, and the structure was fixed. So, and, and, you know, we were treating these things as point estimates, right? We were doing essentially maximum likelihood or something sort of analogous to maximum likelihood um, to train these models. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are certain commonalities, right? There's a sigmoid in both. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but beyond that, I, I'm not really sure if there is that much that's similar. Like, even, even if you think about it, the, like a, a, a deep belief network is interpreted as being a directed graphical model. But the, the base model that we, we kind of use to learn from these, R, these RBMs or, or, or restricted Boltzmann machines are not. They are undirected graphical models. Mm -hmm. The models I was doing at PhD were directed graphical models. And so they have, you know, different properties themselves. Um, interesting. The differences are actually kind of interesting. But um, but nowadays, these these kinds of restricted Boltzmann machines are, are um, not used very frequently, let's say. I mean, people keep on threatening to, br to bring them back. Uh, I think energy-based models are, are interesting and, and will never really go away. Uh, I certainly don't think they are the dominant paradigm. I mean, I can give you my opinion on, on why that or how that transition happened. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually a, a, pretty, a pretty clear uh, line in that the way we think about these kinds of models and, and you know, the let's, let's, so RBMs are these two layer models, right? Where you have a, a layer of observed variables and then a layer of, of hidden uh, latent variables, if you like, or hidden or latent uh, variables. And it's got this interesting structure where, you know, given the observed, you can actually do easy inference over the hiddens. All the hiddens are independent given the observed, and all of the observed are, are independent given the hiddens. Mm -hmm. And so that allows you to train these things in a, in a reasonably effective way um, and do certain kinds of inference uh, reasonably easily. Uh, you can't, for example, easily determine what the probability of an observation is, because for that you would need an estimate of the partition function, which is intractable even in the case of a restricted Boltzmann machine. But you know these things can be approximated reasonably well. The big issue with those kinds of models, though, is uh, is in scaling them up. An RBM has, you know, it, it is essentially a one step beyond just a linear model in the sense that there isn't a lot of non-linearities that go between the the input and the, this this hidden layer right it's essentially just a linear projection and a sigmoid and so if you want to start modeling more complicated things um, you will want a, a deeper model or a model that expresses more complexity and and relationship between the units and so i think for me the model that i was most excited about uh kind of growing out of RBMs are uh, deep Boltzmann machines. So these are models that are essentially just 
more layers stacked on top of one another. So it's the same relationship between the layers as you see with an RBM, but there's just more of them. So this is uh, uh, Russ Salakutinov, I think, is the, the main author on the work introducing those. Um, the, the key thing about that kind of model, though, is that the way we train those models is that we, we rely, in order to get a reasonable estimate of the gradient of the likelihood, we rely on, on reasonable sampling back and forth. Because there's this component of the gradient that actually is derived from the partition function. Now, we don't really need to get into what that is. But, um, but the, the point here is that when you train these models, there's this part of the gradient that, that, that's important in order to get the direction right, to, to allow these models to actually train properly. And when you get that direction uh, wrong, it's, it essentially doesn't train properly. And the way you need, the, what you need to be true in order to get that that estimate correct is the model needs to be able to mix, mm-hmm. and for the model to be able to mix using this Gibbs sampling in this in across these layers of of the model structure, in order to get these to mix properly, there needs to be a certain amount of stochasticity in the units. And what we started to notice is that when we tried to scale these models up to kind of realistic images and try to get detail from these images, in order to actually capture the 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 like you know, detailed structure at the low level, these models actually had to have several layers where they were almost deterministic because you can't have low level stochasticity because a low level unit that's stochastic means it could kind of flip either way, right? Stochastically, that's kind of what it means. And what that would do is that would essentially add noise to your input. And so if we imagine that we're talking about an image here, right? What that means is that if you, if the way this model was structured is if you actually inject noise uh, in this low level, like one of the lower units, that would essentially literally look like noise in the input image. Another way to think about that is that essentially kicks you off the manifold of natural images. If you imagine these models are trying to learn about the manifold of natural images, this low, this low level noise kicks you off that manifold, it gives you an image that doesn't look like a natural image anymore because it looks noisy. Which is, okay, fine, That's that That would be fine. You just have these lower layers that are all deterministic. The problem with that is that goes against how we train these models. Uh-huh. So suddenly the way we train them is flies right in the face of getting better and better models. So so progress in that direction kind of ground to, this, ground to a halt. Mm. And what we found was it was around the same time that we were sort of noticing this, that there started to be alternative models, things like... Say, for example, uh, the, um, uh, the variational autoencoder, right? So the big difference here between a variational autoencoder and the kinds of deep Boltzmann machines that we were looking at at the time is that in a, in a variational autoencoder, you can have a neural network that connects. Instead of just a linear layer, you have a whole nonlinear, as you like, neural network that connects the inputs to your latent uh, variables. And so now you don't have this problem anymore of, so, so you don't have this problem of having to have latent variables that are really, really close uh, in terms of kind of model space to the inputs. You can have a really complicated deterministic network that completely unfolds this image manifold. And so you're actually can be in this latent uh, variable space where you can now move around freely and inject noise. And that noise actually, because you've got this, pretty nonlinear mapping between it and the input, 
that noise actually is now just kind of moving along the image manifold as opposed to like kicking you off it. I see. So, so that was a critical step in this kind of generative modeling is having models where you allow a pretty complicated nonlinear but deterministic mapping between your data space and the space of stochastic or, or latent random variables. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So yeah, kind of maybe just broadly speaking, like research was headed towards these deep bolts machines. It became clear that there was some issues with them. Yeah. And then actually like this alternative VAE type perspective ended up uh, being the way forward, at least for that line. Yeah, exactly. And, and in fact, almost all models kind of follow the same basic pattern, right? In the sense that, you know, even GANs, it's the same thing. It's a, it's a deterministic mapping, a nonlinear mapping between your sort of stochastic random variables and the, uh, and the data space. So that, that was the key kind of, uh, I guess, breakthrough, if you like, in, in, that, in that direction and why those models ended up kind of um, proliferating and, and models like the deep Boltzmann machine tended to, you know, there's just less work on those kinds of models nowadays. Right. Yeah. I was trying to, uh, to lead into some, to get your perspective on, on some of the history of, of these models. So, so that was good. Um, just to like wrap up on the thesis part, how did you then decide to, um, I guess, move to a different research area after doing your PhD? It's a good question. So I guess we talked about how I was always sort of, you know, uh, always a bit envious of the machine learning people, uh, in my, in my, uh, in my uh, PhD. I mean, I enjoyed what I did. I absolutely actually enjoyed what I did. I thought it was really interesting. I was very happy to have the experience of, of studying those kinds of models and really having the chance to dive into a literature in a way that I, I would never really have the opportunity to do again, I don't think. In like you know, li- reading literally hundreds of papers on a topic. It was, it was, it was interesting. Um, but, you know, it, one of the things that I think happened was, was you know, I was, you know, I had these theories. I was a, a young researcher with with all of these ideas and thinking I knew better than than these people whose whose literature I was reading. And I, I had a few experiences where I would kind of interact with some of the the older guard, let's say, of, of that field. And I kind of quickly realized that the experience I had was that they weren't that keen on really. Um, solving what I view as the important mysteries. It felt much more like they were kind of interested in just protecting their own garden of models and experiments. And, you know, each one of them had their own garden of, of the kinds of experiments they did and the kinds of models they, they would t- tend to propose. And they just seemed pretty content with that way of doing things. And it just didn't seem as dynamic to me as what was going on in the machine learning world where people seemed very much uh, much less about, about, you know, who originated the ideas and much more about uh, what the ideas were and were they good, right? It was a, it's an extremely dynamic field that we have here in machine learning. And, and, and I don't, to a certain extent, I don't even know if, if, we we all appreciate just how um, dynamic it is that literally good ideas can come from anywhere and they'll be appreciated and accepted and, and it doesn't matter uh, where they come from. And that's, it's a very special thing that we have 
and 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 so I I very much enjoyed that. But and, and around the same time, so when I finished my PhD, I sort of decided I you know if I could, I would very much like to uh, move into more of a machine learning kind of uh, career. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it was around that time when when my uh, my partner uh, Joël Pinot uh, got a, her job at McGill. So I was actually I finished up my PhD and my the last year of my PhD was actually spent uh, in in coffee shops around Montreal writing my thesis uh, while she was a, a first year professor at McGill and uh, yeah so I, I I finished up and then I found myself kind of you know in Montreal at least for the short term wondering what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. And not really having very much of a plan. So I, I had, you know, I, I knew that there were a few people in Montreal doing interesting machine learning work. And I, I contacted uh, Joshua Bengio, asking him, you know, well, do you have a, a postdoc opportunity for me? And he was like, oh, yeah, sure, maybe. Like, come on in, give a talk. And so he had me come in. I, I gave my talk. And I was doing very different things to the kinds of stuff they were working on those days. Right. So he was... At the time, he he had been doing a lot of work on on SVMs and was starting to kind of rekindle. He, he essentially, as far as I could tell, he he essentially at that point gotten pretty disillusioned with with uh, support vector machines and and the kinds of potential that those kinds of models have. Mm-hmm. So he he would, he decided at that point that you know that you know in retrospect uh, rather. Uh, uh, rather presciently, that that neural nets uh, were really had were the model type that had the long term potential, mm. um, and so he was really driving an effort within his own lab to work on these kinds of models. And I came along uh, with a very different kind of uh, point of view not not necessarily a different point of view actually, but uh, just a different kind of skill set, a different mental frame of reference, you know, I was used to these kinds of graphical models and, and uh, Bayesian inference and, and those kinds of ideas. And so, uh, yeah, but, you know, I gave my talk, uh, I guess he enjoyed it or he found something in it that he enjoyed. And so he, he offered me the, the, the postdoc position. And then I've been at the University of Montreal ever since. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it actually took me a, a while to transition into, uh, into you know fully embracing this this deep learning uh, way of thinking about things. Actually, um, mm-hmm. it at first I was I, I think I, I very much had the kind of bias that people had at the time against neural nets that they were they were passe. You know, all of the cool work was being done in either graphical models or you know SVM style kind of. Uh, convex models where you you take these you take something that looks like a, a, a non-convex model and you 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 know you kernelize it if you like and then um, and then render it convex mm-hmm. the optimization process convex the learning and uh, yeah so I was kind of steeped much more in that milieu so it actually took me quite a bit of time to get to sort of see my way into uh, into these kinds of models and actually it was it was models like restricted Boltzmann machines were kind of my gateway drug because they uh, they were still probabilistic models. I could still interpret them and analyze them as doing an inference process and you know mac- doing maximum likelihood, and I could go from there and be like, okay, yeah, I, I can do this. Like I, I, I enjoyed those kinds of models, and then and then kind of realizing that you know that neural nets were just the more appropriate tool for a lot of the things we wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. 
so yeah, it, I guess it took some time to get up and running, but then eventually you ended up writing the book on deep learning, literally. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what was the backstory behind, um, I, I know we're jumping ahead in time, but just due to the uh, limited nature of the conversation. So like, sure, yeah. um, yeah, what, what was the backstory behind writing this deep learning book, which has now had such a large impact? And could you compare that to writing a PhD thesis, writing a, writing a book? Oh, I mean, they're very different, right? The writing a PhD thesis is it's just you and and you're kind of, you know, that you've got to slog through it and, uh, you know, nothing gets done unless you, unless you do it. Uh, but on the other hand, on the, 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 the flip side of that is it, it is also just you in the sense that it's your ideas, your way of thinking about things. Uh, and um, so, you know, whenever you write a book with people, uh, it's, it's a, it's always, you know, you walk into it with that kind of a compromise. It's a, it's a little bit like a pretty tight relationship. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, that there's, there's, uh, it has its, its positives in the sense that you, you are sharing this with other people that you're sharing the workload and, uh, and, and sometimes it can be challenging too, just to, just to reach a common perspective and, uh, and a common voice mm-hmm. on these kinds of ideas. Yeah. Did you, how did you choose what to put? in the book because I imagine that things were probably changing pretty quickly. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a good point. I, I was actually, I was a little nervous about writing the book at the time because things were like obviously changing so quickly. Um, it, there was a bit of a, it was a call uh, that we made um, that, you know, this is, I guess it was, um, MIT Press approached Joshua originally about writing this book. And, um, you know, there, on the one hand, yes, things were going to change. This book might not last forever. We kind of knew that going in, in terms of being the bench, the, the, uh, the sort of the standard go-to book for this field. Um, on the other hand, there were also just a lot of people coming into the field, right? There's a lot of people that were engineers, uh, not necessarily in school, and, you know, from people with that point of view, they're not in the research community. It can be pretty daunting to kind of just try to absorb the state of the art of the, mach- of the deep learning world from a series of papers. You, you don't even know what papers necessarily to read, mm-hmm. let alone like kind of how, what order to read them in and, and things like that. So, so we really did feel like the, the, the need at the time kind of outweighed the, the this i guess the the risk of a limited shelf life that, that we saw coming realistically and that's that's why we we put it out and why it was a, there was a bit of an urgency in us putting it out is because we felt like like there you know there was a need then um and it was kind of a, a unique and acute need at the moment where there was so many people rushing into this field mm-hmm. yeah i see terms of what what we decided to put into it it really was i I think more or less a snapshot of the stuff we saw around that we felt we could credibly talk about and that we thought had a chance of being around you know in the in the near future right Mm -hmm. so you can say like there's a good chunk of the book that are actually on things like restricted boltzmann machines and and by the time we had you know wrapping up the book it was already getting pretty clear to us that that you know that 
the proportion, at least the proportion of the book dedicated to that material was not really well justified if you think about the impact it was going to soon have on the research world. So the, yeah, but you know, it's, it's a snapshot in time. There's not much you can do about that. Yeah. And then um, since then, what are some research directions that you're interested in? I, I guess uh, since I work in language, like I noticed you've been looking into this idea of generalization and yeah. compositionality of language. Like you had some papers about, um, uh, you know, incorporating latent trees and, and things like this. Right, right. Is this something that you're really interested in still? It is. It is actually. Um, I'm, I'm getting more interested in this area uh, by the day. So we talked, I mentioned earlier that there's, that there are ideas from cognitive science that I that I'm getting excited by now. Um, so one of them is actually in this direction. So it's this idea. It's a theory known as I, I goes by the name iterated learning. It's a rather unfortunate name because it, it, it sounds pretty mundane, but it, it's a really cool idea. It's at least I think it's a really cool idea. It's it's actually originates as a theory of how humans uh, how human language emerged in particular how it emerged with the compositional structure that it has. Mm -hmm. So the, the theory goes something like um, at every, every generation teaches the next generation their language, but that, 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 that instruction that's, that supervised, uh, you know, teaching signal is imperfect in some sense. So either you imagine that there's, you know, the, the training set, if you like, is relatively small or the amount of time that they have to train in that supervised way is rel relatively limited. But then you imagine that generation going off and, you know, expanding the language, interacting and, and kind of learning and growing the language. And then that process repeats. They go and teach it to the next generation. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's this bottleneck learning that happens in the intergenerational transmission of language from one generation to the next that ends up giving you this uh, this interesting property whereby the, co the, the, the compositional structure seems to be promoted from generation to generation. And you can start with a, with a language that is not at all compositional. And in, in you know, a relatively small number of generations, you have a language that is much more compositional. Huh. And so why that's interesting to me is, is that compositionality is one of the sort of bedrock mechanisms we have to things like systematic generalization. So what systematic generalization is, at least I use it in the same way that it's used in the COGSI and uh, I guess the, to some extent the NLP literature, is we want to be able to generalize beyond um, just the training distribution we see, right? And language actually is a great example of that, right? I, I, can, I could say, uh, you know, like... Uh, yellow sheep sleep furiously misquoting some a famous example there right but that that's a that's a sentence that you've probably never heard before um but you know you have a sense of what it can mean right it's it's not meaningless to you you can it, it it's it's in a sense a little meaningless because the concept of the whole doesn't make sense but you could draw it you could represent it that is a, a meaningful in some sense, a meaningful concept, even though you, it's, it's, it could be arbitrarily far away from your whatever experience you've ever had uh, in, your, in your sort of lived training set, let's say. So, so and, and what justifies or what enables that is the compositionality, right? Because every word in that sentence 
is something you've heard and you have experience and you know what it means. And so you can combine them together, these known elements combined together in a, in a, in a unique and novel way to get a unique and novel uh, meaning as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so that is the kind of, of um, generalization that we don't tend to see in our models right now, even our extremely large BERT style language models. They don't tend to be very good at that kind of generalization. And I think it's going to be a key element moving forward if we're able to recover the, that kind of compositional or, or systematic generalization. And so why that, so, so then kind of coming back to, okay, well, how do we, how do we make sure that the, our models are able to, to demonstrate that kind of systematic generalization? And it seems as though this notion of iterated learning is actually a, a pretty interesting and, and potentially useful way of doing it. Mm. So we've got a few papers out recently where we're starting to introduce this idea as a learning paradigm in certain models and demonstrate that we can actually, you know, generalize systematically in a way that, um, that we can't otherwise, or at least not easily. Yeah. So things like, um, neural module networks, for, for example, we had Jacob Andreas on the show before that's kind of introducing a, an inductive bias into the model itself. This iterative learning, it could use any model and it's kind of approaching it from just the learning algorithm perspective. Yeah. Or is it still incorporating some compositional bias into the model as well? Well, it it is, as far as we know, I mean, we're still sort of getting, wrapping our minds around it. We we don't really understand everything there is to understand about it. We have certain ideas, uh, but I think we're very much in the the early stages of understanding this, this phenomenon. I guess maybe I should say I am still in the early stages of understanding this phenomenon. Uh, maybe so. I should say Simon Kirby is the is the um, cog- cognitive scientist that really in, really pioneered this uh, in the I think it in and around the year two thousand. So it's been a theory that's been around for about twenty years, and he's actually demonstrated this this uh, language emergence phenomenon with with, with humans and with, um, with neural nets, actually, at this point, there's, there's, there are some iClear papers from last year, um, that, that actually do demonstrate this, Hmm. that we can actually emerge neural languages. Now, I don't know if, if you've, if you mentioned, uh, these uh, neural modular networks, uh, just offhand, but we, we actually have a submission to, to iClear this year, but we actually have a paper that, that looks exactly that. We, we apply uh, iterated learning to these neural module networks. Oh, wow. And, um, and it, exactly in this question of, of the program generation component. So these programs are themselves, you know, we would like them to be ideally compositional, right? Because we want the, the structure of the modules to be compositional. Yeah. And so apply it right there. And we actually find that we're, we're able to see pretty significant benefits to using this iterated learning. So we're just relearning over and over again with this learning bottleneck in this program generation component. Uh-huh. And yeah, it, it, it seems to be working reasonably, in some cases dramatically, in some cases less dramatically, but for something where we're just at the beginning of exploring, I'm, it's something I'm pretty excited about. And it's a, it's a pretty... so. As far as I know, this is the only real bottom-up mechanism we have to build these kinds, to sort of, I guess, steer us towards more compositional structures. Mm-hmm. And again, it's 
I'm after compositionality because I'm interested in systematic generalization. I'm not interested in compositionality for its own sake, right? I, to me, it's it's a means to an end. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it's a really interesting area, and it's it is interesting how even these really large neural models that we have will completely fail in terms of this uh, systematic generalization. So yeah, it's an interesting area. Yeah. And then maybe to uh, to speculate a bit more towards the future, <laughs> towards the end of the interview. Um, mm -hmm. So in, in your thesis, you reference these MAR levels, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the computational, the algorithmic, or the hardware. Do you think that we'll see more changes in, in one of these levels versus the other in terms of deep learning? Like, could we see completely different hardware in, in 10 years? Or will it mostly be like changes in the, um, the algorithm level? So I'm really not qualified to uh, to comment on the hardware level. It's not something I I, um, I, I you know I spend a lot of my time thinking about or or, or reading about. Uh, so I'm not really I, I have no idea. I guess on that front, uh, I don't really see you know that what I guess what I have seen from as as a sort of a somebody who's very much on the sidelines of that is that there, this this idea of hardware dedicated for neural net processing seems to come in waves um you know every every decade or so there's a group of people who get very very excited about this idea and it, it happened relatively recently but I, I haven't heard much uh much noise from that from those that corner um recently like in the last year or so so i, I don't know to what extent there is progress there. Um, moving up from the implementational level, uh, I get well. I guess one one thing I I would say that will likely be true is that um, I think getting tools that enable enable a better integration between the hardware we're actually running on and the the software we want to run has always been key to this field, right? Right from the beginning, you know, when when at Milo when they innovated uh, Theano, right? That that was a, a really big step, which was then followed up by TensorFlow and PyTorch. These and and now Jax. These these are really really important tools uh, to and to support research in this direction, and they're, they're really important tools for everyone. So, I think we are going to see a develop a further development of those tools. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why they're so important is because. To a certain extent, our field is, we, we are now working with such large pieces that if we were to do the kind of work that I did in my day, which was like, okay, now I, I have to program the, the learning algorithm. So I would derive the, the back propagation, like the, the gradient say for every step. And you know, the, the models we're dealing with nowadays are so complex that the odds that you would do that without, without a bug are almost zero. Right. And debugging those kinds of systems is, is extraordinarily difficult. Um, so, so yeah, so I, I, I think those tools have been incredibly important and I can only imagine that they, you know, the further development of those tools will continue to be really important. Um, one of the things I've seen recently is that there's a lot of, of interest in sort of using gradients in, in more sophisticated ways. Like for example, in, in our own work a few years ago, Ishan Goljani, who developed uh, our improved training of Wasserstein GAN's work, where he introduced this gradient penalty. And I think 
that kind of work would actually be pretty complicated to do without this kind of automatic differentiation. And I think people have picked up those kinds of ideas and have really, you know, uh, pushed them very far. So, yeah, I think those kinds of tools are actually extremely important. Um, now, getting back to uh, this idea of like the, the levels of analysis. So, so that's the, the lowest level and sort of the, the bridge between the lowest level and the next level. I think we've been sitting at the kind of algorithmic level for a very long time in the way that sort of, I think, connectionism lives at that level. So if we go back to the, the Cogsci um, reflections on this. So, you know, we are tinkering with algorithms a lot that have a pretty broad impact on the way these models work. And, and you know, this, this style of research has actually been enormously successful. It isn't necessarily um, maybe particularly theoretically motivated, but it, it is nonetheless been extremely successful. So what we have are kinds of introductions of methods such as, you know, just ReLUs at first, dropout, um, which, which, you know, a lot of theory has subsequently been written uh, about those, that model, for, you know, after its introduction. And then, and then uh, ResNets, batch norm, these kinds of things have all really driven our field forward. Tr uh, Transformers, all of these things, they, they start out as kind of empirical successes and then people go and analyze them. Um, right. I don't really see much of a difference uh, going into the future in the sense that I, I suspect it will still be largely driven um, by these kinds of empirical considerations. Every once in a while, you'll see uh, theoretical, uh, you know, more of a, let's say, a top-down uh, theoretical perspective mm -hmm. guiding our way and changing how we think about things in really, really important ways that do also make very practical differences. One of the ones that I point to that I really think um, changed my way of thinking about things is actually the um, the Washington GAN work. Mm. Um, I think that way of thinking about GANs is, is, is frankly much cleaner than our original way of thinking about them. I, I really appreciate uh, that conceptual framework. And I think it actually guides a lot of the either implicitly or explicitly guides a lot of the the subsequent work that has has gone on to improve um the the performance on, in a very practical way of those kinds of models right so and and the wall street again was really driven from the more the theory perspective is what you're saying yeah exactly yeah yeah so it seems like changes uh, potentially at the different levels and then also between the levels and um Maybe just, just to wrap up, one of the most difficult questions is always coming up with one piece of advice for, for a new researcher. Um, so does anything come to mind, like looking back, one helpful thing to kind of keep in mind? Yeah, I, I thought about this. Um, so I guess in the spirit of, of my, um, of my thesis uh, and my, my experience in doing my thesis research, I think as, I, as I've already mentioned, one of the things I think I, I really appreciated was this opportunity to kind of dive really deeply into this area and, and get kind of a lay of the land, right? Really sort of be able to sort of absorb this, this large quantity of, of, of literature, and in my case, these, these animal learning phenomena, 
and, and trying to sort of sift through them and not necessarily be in any kind of particular rush to just get out the next paper, right? To have the time to like consider these things in a, in a more of a kind of a, uh, I guess a calm and, and, and directed way. I think nowadays the tendency is kind of much more, you know, push out the next paper, push out the next paper. And, and, and people I think tend to see things in a little bit more of a short term kind of way. And I guess my advice would be that, that, you know, it's not going to suit everyone and it's not going to suit every moment, but during your PhD, you should try to stay, you know, set aside some amount of time. And this, by time, I mean, this could be months where you really dive into something like some problem or puzzle that you're passionate about. And you try to really drive this forward in a way that, that, um, you know, no one else is ever going to sort of stop and take the time to do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how people end up making real progress in, in fields is because they, they you know, they actually get into the details and try to understand things from many different perspectives. Uh, I think that that's something like, for example, as a professor now, it's extremely rare and just frankly unlikely that I'll have much of a chance to go into that. I, I just don't have the sort of the, the bandwidth to dedicate myself in that kind of minutia uh, of a problem domain. But I think that's really how we, we make important advances. So, so yeah, that's, I think something I, 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 I wish, I wish for my PhD students and I wish for uh, everyone doing a PhD that they have that kind of experience. Yeah. So, so try to take advantage of the opportunity for um, really going in depth, taking maybe like a slower, longer term view. Yeah. And I'd imagine that that's not only good for building your skills as a researcher, but maybe that's actually where these big shifts in thinking come from. It's from taking that longer term perspective. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think, I mean, sometimes, you know, sometimes you can have these kinds of big shifts relatively quickly. It happens. Uh, but uh, if it's going to happen in a, in a sort of a slow, careful way, the PhD is really the time to do it. In. It's because you're not going to have many other opportunities to, to sort of spend that kind of time, you know, working on something like that, where nobody's sort of beating down your door. You, you don't have, even in industry, right? You've got like these, these, uh, you know, these biannual uh, kind of progress reports where you feel a certain amount of pressure to be productive on a, on a weekly basis. So to, to be able to, if you, if you could kind of square away some time to sort of say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to spend some time really thinking about a problem and this, and maybe nothing will come of it, but, but it, I think it's worth a shot to, to really kind of take on something like that. I think you'll grow as a person. It's worth that alone. It makes it worth a while from my point of view. Well, I think that's a good place to end. And thanks so much for taking the time to do this. Cool. Um, it was really fun to go back and hear your perspective on your PhD, but then also just like the history of, of, of deep learning in some sense and uh, your career since then. So thanks so much for coming on to the thesis review. Oh, thank you very much. It was a, it was a real pleasure.